Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker Baker Street Street Regulars, Regulars. a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, Justin M. Can you introduce yourself for the for the listeners? Sure. I'm Jess and I use she her pronouns. I'm M. I use they them pronouns. This is your second time appearing on one of our podcasts. You were on Mm -hmm. our last season about uh, Romeo and Juliet stories. Yes. but you guys were excited about Sherlock Holmes. Can you tell me about your history with the Sherlock Holmes stories? Sure. So I love the Sherlock Holmes stories because it's kind of nostalgic for me. I have my grandfather's copy of the complete Sherlock Holmes that he was given by his mother. So it's got notes from both my great grandmother and my grandfather in the front cover. So it's kind of near and dear to my heart. I have read several of the stories in there. I've watched several adaptations of in movie format. I just, I love the excitement and the kind of clever aspect of the Sherlock Holmes stories. This was admittedly my first, like, original Sherlock Holmes introduction. I've seen different adaptations i saw star trek episodes that were based around sherlock holmes stories but this was my first actual introduction to sherlock holmes that's wild because this is not a direct adaptation from one of the stories no. so it's a, yeah. there are some liberties taken do you guys have favorite adaptations you've seen of the sherlock holmes you said you've seen other adaptations honestly i've read more of the stories than i have seen the movies I did quite enjoy the uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. It was fun. Though maybe uh, the show Sherlock was one of my favorite ones because it really took that uh, classic story and just brought it into a more modern time period for me. Hmm. Really, the only ones that I've ever truly paid attention to were the Star Trek. I'm a huge Trekkie, so the Star Trek mysteries on the ship that, you know, Data would put his, his Sherlock Holmes outfit on and it's elementary, my dear Watson. And then he'd like pause and be like, Captain, this is probably <laughs> one of my one of my favorite moments in Star Trek. But that's that's about it. Yeah, we're excited to cover Elementary, My Dear Data, which is the name of the episode when the strike is over. So why don't we talk about this movie, which is Murder by Decree. Ian, you have fast facts. I do, I do. Murder by Decree. It is a 1979 mystery thriller film directed by Bob Clark. It stars Christopher Plummer and James Mason as Sherlock and Watson. And it tells of Sherlock and Watson being embroiled in the investigation surrounding the real-life Whitechapel murders committed by Jack the Ripper. It is loosely based off of The Ripper File by Elwyn Jones and John Lloyd. And the film's premise and of the plot of the murders is influenced also by the book Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution by Stephen night this movie came out in 1979 only in united kingdom and canada with a budget of five million dollars it only made 1.9 million dollars in canada so that's why we're able to cover it while we're not covering struck work because it was never never released in america no it was never released in america Mm -hmm. this film is the fourth highest grossing film ever in canada Wow, low yeah, bar. Low bar. <laughs> it was also nominated for eight Genie Awards in 1980, of which it won five. The Genie Awards are a Canadian Film Awards. I know so little about Canadian film 
And really fun fact, Christopher Plummer is a second cousin of Nigel Bruce, our old friend back in the Rathbone and Bruce Watson and Sherlock era that we talked about. This is one of a number of Sherlock Holmes adaptations to play with the idea that he might have gone up against Jack the Ripper. Mm. In fact, there's another film from about 10 years before this one, a British film that was produced that has the same actor that plays Lestrade. Oh, did you guys know a lot about the Jack the Ripper mythos going into this? I knew a bit. His kind of story and the mystery around the murders is fairly well known. I wouldn't say I knew much more than the general plot of the murders and the mystery. but Yeah, I think that's where I'm at, too. Yeah, I think I knew a little bit more because of one BuzzFeed Unsolved when they did their <laughs> episode on Jack the Ripper. And to another uh, YouTuber, Lindsay Ellis, did a whole series called Loose Cannon, which talked about like different adaptations of one character. And she did an episode on Jack the Ripper through different films. So the film opens with foggy London streets. Yeah. Or in slow motion. And like, this is that's fun because we actually haven't seen an adaptation that does Foggy London Streets yet, which feels like such a basic part of the Sherlock Holmes image. Right. Or at least what I conceive of it. Nor horses in slow motion. Yeah. That's that's pretty common in (laughs) in Victorian England. Arthur Conan Doyle was always describing slow motion horses. (laughs) The movie actually opens with Holmes and Watson at the opera. Right. A common hobby for them. Totally. To take breaks from your work in order to do the things that you enjoy. It's his work-life balance. Exactly. (laughs) Arthur Conan Doyle taking work-life balance seriously. Sherlock Holmes, our mental health queen. Uh, So we immediately get introduced to the Sherlock Watson dynamic of the film. Mm -hmm. And they have kind of like a playful back and forth thing going on. Mm -hmm. They they like joke together. And then the opera is held up because the Crown Prince of Wales is late and they're waiting for him before they start. And he arrives and there's like the poor people who are mad about him being late who start shouting at him. We actually paused the film to look up why they were mad because yeah. we understand the context. I believe was... it was George V and he had an interesting history Yes, and was not particularly favored by the people. There was definitely a sense of like a class war going on in the crowd where all of the kind of wealthier and elite in the lower tiers were like cheering for him. And then the top tier of the opera was like kind of the standing room only less affluent folks who were not a fan. And uh, like Watson very clearly aligns himself with the upper class and with the monarchy by yelling, God save the queen until everyone's... God save the king. Oh, right. Yeah. Until everybody's yelling it and then they drown out the poor people Mm -hmm. which i don't think is a metaphor but holmes also doesn't have like he's not like uh particularly like yeah god save the king he's Mm -hmm. just like i'm just here to see the opera like let's just get this Mm -hmm. started like good job quieting everyone down yeah yes we cut to a guy with really weird eyes yeah and really shallow breathing had like a werewolf thing going on for a minute and we witness a ghastly murder a lot longer than i thought they were gonna show it to be honest that lasted a while a pretty indulgently filmed ghastly murder it's pretty Mm -hmm. gratuitous Mm -hmm. and i was like oh no this is gonna be the whole movie they're gonna be like 
look at the pain of these women, you know? Right. Um, and it's the only time they do this, actually. They do allude kind of back to it with Mary Kelly later on, where they're flashing in between both. Yes. But with that one, there's a window in the way. So I'm, yeah. I'm like, I don't actually know what's happening there. Some, mm-hmm. The color red is present. but yeah. yeah. Spoiler alert, there's a lot of blood. A lot of blood in this, blood in this movie. It's the 70s. It's the 70s. That's the thing about most ripper films they just like to show violence <laughs> it seems especially from the 60s onwards oh and we didn't ensure that we're doing this because this is our halloween special as well <laughs> spooky <laughs> jack the ripper <laughs> i'll have to admit it was very spooky in the beginning i was yeah a little concerned that i was going to be scared through the whole movie yeah, And that it was going to focus more on the horror and gore aspect rather than the Sherlock Holmes aspect. Yeah. And then it I like was pleasantly just, surprised, but it just loses momentum, I think. <laughs> so some parts of this, one I'm going to race through a little bit. We get the classic Sherlock Holmes deer stalker look as he's leaving the opera with the with the hat and the cape. And he's like concerned that he hasn't been brought onto the case. And then <laughs> local business owners who we later find out are quote unquote radicals come to hire him to investigate the Whitechapel murders because the news of this strangling has been printed in papers immediately. Like, she got strangled during the opera and there's papers being released after the opera about her death, which I don't know how fast print presses moved at the time, but... Well, it also looked like it was just one sheet of paper, so they were probably just going... (laughs) Just a broadsheet. Yeah. Yeah, and I I guess there was an evening edition of the paper at the time. And I wonder, since there had already been a murder, that they were ready in case there was another one but how long was this opera that they had time to print all of those right it also is just like a form letter they're just filling in names and dates i was gonna say notoriously operas are long so they probably had plenty of time actually that's true true. (laughs) this is our first look at sherlock holmes and watson's apartment this feels unique in terms of holmes and watson apartment decor i feel like often we get this version with like tall windows and the fireplace and it feels very airy and this feels so 70s what do you guys think of their study there was a lot going on in there there were skulls and chemical equipment and books not as many books as i thought there were going to be i thought it was interesting that we got to see more than just the study we saw their like kitchen and their dining space and all of that which like you said, we don't often get to see. Can we talk about the pee for a moment, though? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, let me see if there's anything between there and the pee okay. that we should talk about. We see that Watson lives in the apartment because Holmes goes and wakes him up in the middle of the night because there's been a crime or something. Sir Charles, who is the head of Scotland Yard, yes, shows up and wants Holmes off the case because there's been another moita. There's seemingly anti-Semitic graffiti. At this point, also, there's this emerging joke that Holmes... He keeps making about Watson being straight, basically. Yeah. I did notice that. He, he keeps being like, you'll be distracted by ladies, but I won't, effectively. <laughs> Which is interesting, and we'll talk more about what that means later. And then we get to this pee scene. Which, oh my. Jess, if you could describe. P-E-A. Oh. Okay. Watson's sitting down, and he's finishing his supper, and Holmes is talking to him and kind of wanting him to move along so that they can get back to work. But... Watson is trying, I think he said, I'm trying to corner the last P. And it becomes more of a significant part of the movie than I could have ever imagined. Because they spend, I want to say, at least six lines on it, talking about this P. And Holmes comes over and smushes it in an effort to help Watson eat it. 
and Watson's upset because it loses the texture and right. there's just so much that goes into this conversation. It was a really developmental moment for their relationship in a way Definitely. because only two people that are very, very close would ever spend that much time talking about a pee. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only thing that this scene is is doing is being like, here's the dynamic between these two people. And yet it's the best scene in the movie. (laughs) It's the one that's going to stay with me. I'll be honest. Yeah. I I wrote down, quote, you squashed my pee. (laughs) So what do we learn about that dynamic from this scene? Like, they certainly like know each other well enough to have stupid conversations. Yeah. And, And then... Holmes like solves the problem, which feels very Holmes, but he does it in a way that like no one's happy with, right? Which which feels like it could be foreshadowing, maybe, about my feelings about the movie. Could be. <laughs> I also think it highlights something interesting about Holmes and the fact that I felt like in this movie he was a very mild Sherlock, mm-hmm. where we often get a Sherlock that is kind of elitist and I know more than you and. I, doesn't care about other people's feelings as much i felt like holmes in this movie was very mild in this scene he actually apologizes to watson which i don't think i've ever seen before in the scene with sir charles where sir charles is trying to get him off the case he kind of takes a step back and says don't worry i'm leaving i'm not going to try and get in the way and that felt very different than the Sherlock I've experienced before who would be like well I'm smarter than you so you clearly need my help it was an interesting character development moment in that scene as well yeah and it also in my opinion and maybe this is just like with the rest of the movie in hindsight it kind of shows like their two just styles of detective work or how they view detective work where Mm -hmm. Watson is like trying to just get the pee as a whole and just trying to see like the thing as it is and just trying to like do his job and like do his thing and just viewing it as it is and Sherlock is like no this is gonna get messy (laughs) like I have to squish it and make things messy in order to figure out how to solve this problem right going about it the expected way or the right way in quotes or finding another way about it is the pee Mary Kelly is is the movie like Watson would never have been able to find Mary Kelly, but Sherlock found Mary Kelly in a way that like got her killed. I could see that. Yes, that's very possible. I hadn't thought of that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Wow, this P scene is a lot more symbolic. <laughs> well, I just I'm trying to make it mean anything because otherwise the movie is just like they bicker Wasted. over how to eat food. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it fits into our, our, our old married couple thing. Yeah, our old married couple thing. For your subtext, yeah. Yeah, but again, because there's so many straight jokes for Watson, and especially wonder... later on in the film, too, there's a lot of straight jokes. But despite the fact that Sherlock's always making the joke, Watson never actually shows interest in a woman in the movie. No. He is visibly uncomfortable when a woman makes advances, makes advances on him. He is like, I am here for one job for <laughs> my friend he's only thinking about Sherlock and helping him do what he needs to do so they can get back to the opera yeah he just, he just wants to have a quiet life and hang out with Sherlock they definitely had like you said that like old married couple dynamic going on I think after that scene I turned to him and I said this is a conversation we would have like <laughs> oh yeah I was like this is us <laughs> yeah so 
definitely an interesting relationship development point. Yeah. They meet an informant down by the wharf. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fun bit of staging here where they're up on the dock and then the informant is in a boat underneath the dock talking to them. I, I kind of like that. I like how mysterious that yeah. is. He doesn't like he doesn't stick with it because he gets out of the boat and immediately is stabbed to death. Runs right. with a sword. So that but confused me. Because he apparently rose away and then Sherlock and Watson exit the scene. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back, and I don't quite understand why he would come back to the same spot. Yeah. But I kind of viewed it as like he's making it seem like he's like getting away from them or like just like getting out of town in general because he's like being an informant and doesn't want to like get caught. But because he's one of the shopmen that came to Holmes and Watson earlier in the film, it's like, no, he has to get back to work. So <laughs> got to get back <laughs> and yeah. to land. Right, one of the ill-defined radicals. Got to open my shop. Um, oh no, I've been stabbed. <laughs> and I'm falling into the Thames. Watson offers Sherlock a gun back at the flat. He's like, things are dangerous, you take this gun. And he's like, don't worry, my scarf is a weapon. Yeah, what's in it? <laughs> that was delightful. My initial reaction with that is, so one of them knits, and it's probably <laughs> Sherlock, because how else would he have gotten that into his scarf? Either he made the scarf or he purchased the scarf and altered it. Oh, I I got the feeling that he purchased it overseas somewhere. Yeah, in Uh, India. But I like the theory that one of them knits because you know what's queer? Knitting. (laughs) Canonically. Canonically. So so we get this checkup scarf where Holmes is like, my scarf is a weapon. And then he like smashes one of his own beakers, which seems unnecessary (laughs) to prove that it could be a weapon. This is also the most speakers we've ever seen in a Sherlock adaptation oh, so yeah. far. Like, this is yeah. like, again, mad scientist territory. It's very Victor Frankenstein. Yes. He had a lab. Um, Remember how they get connected to the psychic guy? I don't. The informant under the dock that oh. gets back oh, right. says, you should yes. go see this particular individual. And then Watson goes, you know this guy? And Sherlock is like, of course, I know all of the psychics in... London, what are you talking about? Yes, Robert Lees. Yeah, this is a departure from the books in some ways, which is that Sherlock seems really willing to trust a psychic. Mm -hmm. And the Sherlock in the books, I think, is pretty pragmatic and pretty like the world is only what it is and there's no nothing mystical about it. Obviously, Arthur Conan Doyle was sort of the opposite. So this is an interesting like maybe blending of creator and creation. In comparison to the other Holmes and even the book Holmes, there seems to be a lot of more sincerity of this Holmes. Like he's really, and especially later on in the film, really invested in this case to the point of like going into harm's way to protect these people, Mm -hmm. which I don't think regular Holmes would do. I think the Holmes that we're used to would just be like, I have solved it. We're going to catch the people. Right. And then I'm going to explain how I solved it. Yeah. I'll put myself in harm's way on my own. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> I actually think that Watson was more Holmes than Holmes was, based on what I know of of Holmes's typical attitude, where Watson was very like, we're upper class, where we're not going to really interact with these people on a day-to-day basis. Why is this so important to you? Whereas usually it's Sherlock that is very like, I'm just here to solve the case. I don't particularly care about the people involved, which seemed like Watson's attitude for a lot of this. 
they seem to like swap a little bit. Yeah, yeah. we haven't talked a lot about James Mason or Chris Plummer's performances as Holmes and Watson. Had you, had you guys heard of James Mason before? No. So my only reference point for James Mason <laughs> is that the comedian Susie Eddie Izzard always references James Mason. I think she just found out she could do a James Mason voice, and she does it in a lot of her com- uh, comedy specials oh. as the like voice of God. So all I knew about James Mason was that he, he talked like that, which is like sort of like upper class and, and blustery. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. A certain amount of like Holmes. I I I don't think we should intercede, <laughs> sort of thing. Which is which is interesting. It's interesting to have like a like kind of fancy guy Watson because it's so not canonical. Like Watson is, I mean, he's certainly not lower class, but he like was an army doctor and is a veteran and yeah, he's not like a lord. I was gonna say this Watson definitely feels like he wasn't an army doctor, more just like a medical professional in London. Yeah, it's only mentioned peripherally that he even practices medicine. Yeah, at one point he comes to the defense of of the idea that a doctor could be behind the Ripper killings. He's like, I I can't imagine someone of that disposition or whatever. So Sir Charles, head of Scotland Yard, arrests Holmes for for the death of the informant because they were seen there. And someone references that Sir Charles is a dangerous man with, quote, many secret friends. And Holmes is like, I know what that means, which is the Freemasons. Yes. Yes. Must be the Masons. Must be the Masons. They're the only ones with secret friends. (laughs) the only ones and he also decodes the graffiti that we took to be anti-semitic before as actually being a coded reference to the masons Mm -hmm. and it sort of isn't worth describing why no because it doesn't matter yeah it was not crucial to the plot it very vaguely points him towards the freemason like it was in passing a clue well and also only to further the plot yeah yeah now that i'm thinking about the movie in totality who wrote the graffiti we don't know. I don't think we ever find out. So somebody else in London knows that the Freemasons are behind the Ripper killings and they, wrote this piece of graffiti and then no one ever finds this person? They mention somebody saw and knows that it was the Freemasons. And I think that they come to the conclusion that it was, what was his name? Foxborough. Was it? Foxborough, yes. They... they imply that it was Foxborough because he knows Sir Charles and he is also a rebel. Mm. So he is trying to like sneakily on behalf of the rebels points Sherlock towards I think I think that's what they conclude is that he was guiding them towards the Freemasons. Oh keeping himself under wraps. Like a mummy. Like a mummy. <laughs> the Sherlock also reveals that the killings reflect a Masonic legend, that the people are being killed in in reference to this legend, which we later learn is a cover for something more basic. But the only way that would ever work is if like a lot of the public were aware of this ma- this secret society's legend and how people die in it. Like right. I'm not I don't understand why your cover for your political assassinations would be a secret society's ritual reference it doesn't feel like a very well thought out plan honestly especially because it points right back to the people who did it yeah yeah who are actually freemasons yeah i mean i guess unless you know the stories and who they are and like everything like it's obvious 
like it feels like it would be obvious to other Freemasons and like there's this whole thing of like we don't we don't rat each other out so I bet there's like other Freemasons in the movie who are like seeing all this and being like oh okay I see what you're doing I ain't gonna say anything zip flips yeah I think it is a recurring thing over the first half of the movie that like Sherlock can't get a break like no one wants to talk about this in the next scene he disguises himself as a chimney sweep and goes back to talk to the psychic which also seems unnecessary that he disguised himself and but it's sherlock he has to disguise himself very classic sherlock Sherlock there it's not a sherlock movie unless he disguises himself at some point but the psychic is like i know exactly who the killer is but i can't tell you because i've been pressured not to so and then holmes also like independently verifies who the killer is because he found a grape stem at the scene of the murders can we talk about the grape stem yeah that's a bit of a stretch for me yeah oh you you actually bring some expertise to this so yes my background is in agriculture so i found this particular fact of the movie a bit unlikely (laughs) to say the least (laughs) Mm -hmm. so he identifies the grape stem as being significant because it's a particular variety of grapes that are only purchased by very wealthy people and there's only one shipment that comes into london or something along those lines yeah and all he really has is the dried up stem with like a couple of little grapes left on it that Mm -hmm. are dried and everything so how he could tell from the grape stem that it was a particular variety is a little beyond me M pointed out earlier that he brings it home and he runs some tests on the like remaining grapes and all of that. And while there are particular varieties that are a little bit more expensive, there's ones that are bred to have certain flavor profiles and those particular grapes might be identifiable in some ways. I think, especially if we're looking at it from the set of lab equipment that he had at home, it would be incredibly unlikely that he would be able to take this dried up grape stem with dried up grapes and be able to identify a particular variety with such certainty. And in the Victorian era, no less. Exactly. So, I mean, do you buy also that in the Victorian era, fancy grapes would have been a rich person snack? In London, possibly, because mm-hmm. they would have to import them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can grow certain varieties of grapes in that climate i mean we have a similar climate here and we are able to grow some grapes but there are certain ones that they would have had to import from france or italy or other countries that were a bit warmer and that it could have had a different like terroir because of the soil that the grapes were grown in but the implication that there's these grapes that are so fancy that only a couple of people buy them is unlikely. And then I think further unlikely is that they would bring them as a snack when they're doing the murders. Also true. Or like you leave them in their snack. pocket or something like that. Yeah. Right. No. Unless it was like stuck to a boot or something. I'm, I'm sort of unclear on. No, right. sometimes <laughs> when you are murdering, you need to just, you know, pop a few grapes in your mouth, you know, and then you're good to go. I'm assuming it takes a lot of work. You've got to balance those electrolytes. Right. Exactly. It's a lot of exertion. And they can't bring a steak in a carriage. Like, come on. So despite the fact that in the last scene, Sherlock was like, I will use my power of disguise and I will blend in as a chimney sweep so I can go to visit the psychic. In the next scene, he makes Watson go 
to try to get information from the other prostitutes who have not been killed by the Ripper yet in just his normal garb, which again, like we've described, this Watson's effect is sort of <laughs> like the fanciest man alive. I do want to ask, it comes into question a lot because we've seen in past adaptations and just like in the past there's a point where Holmes is not recognized Holmes and Watson are not recognized yeah and there's a point where they are yes in this one he definitely is is a public figure but Watson isn't but Watson isn't which is which doesn't make any sense (laughs) no so he doesn't have to disguise I think what it is actually is in this one Holmes is a public figure because of Watson's writings about him Mm. that's what I would guess so people don't know what he looks like but do know what his name is yeah which makes sense in the context of Victorian London, but it also makes sense based on other parts of the movie where they are looking for someone and don't know how to find them except to ask other people. Yeah, I noticed that particularly because it's so easy for us to look up people's phone numbers or get their address or find people these days. It struck me that Every time they needed to find someone, they had to do a lot of digging and a lot of asking people where to go. Take us back. Let's go back to those days. Right. I think we get in this scene with where Watson is hanging out in the outdoor prostitute tavern. Is that what that is? It's just it's just a tavern. But they, just... I feel like they're outdoors, right? No, it's just the lighting was bad. Oh, okay. I think in this scene we get a Bechtel pass. I think two of the prostitutes talk to each other about something that isn't a man. So I think maybe they're not named characters, though. No, I don't think so. So it gets so close. But we haven't we haven't had one yet (laughs) in the season. Um, One day. One day. (laughs) I look forward to seeing a Holmes adaptation that has three dimensional women that are interesting and relevant to the plot. This is not that adaptation, (laughs) unfortunately. No. Watson gets accused of being the Ripper and is arrested. Yeah, because... You know, one of the prostitutes is like, yeah, I know Mary Kelly. And then he's like, I actually don't. And then another guy comes in and is like, hey, bribe. I'm going to tell your wife that you're talking to my prostitute girlfriend. It was very Hamilton. Watson is very, go ahead. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? What are you going to tell Sherlock? He's going to get a kick out of this. Mm -hmm. Well, and in fact, he does. Tell my wife, quotes, wife. (laughs) Yeah, Sherlock has to come break him out of jail the next morning. And yeah. they have, they're like having fun, like Sherlock and Lestrade are making a lot of jokes at Watson's expense. Uh, Lestrade says that he's going to release Watson, quote, into Sherlock's custody. <laughs> Take care of him now. Right. You better watch him. Make yeah. sure he doesn't get in any more trouble. I like seeing Sherlock and Lestrade and Watson just goofing around and having a good time. That That's a TV show right there. It yeah. was fun. It also felt like a departure from the... Conan Doyle writings though because often Lestrade and Sherlock don't get along mm-hmm. in the original works but I did enjoy it in this context Yeah, it was also a nice break from the serious sleuthing that they've been doing is Sherlock is like comes and gets Watson and Watson is like why didn't you notice that I didn't come home last night <laughs> and Sherlock is like Maybe you were doing some good work. You know what? I, I'm not going to pry. And Watson is very offended that Sherlock did not either notice that he didn't come <laughs> or didn't care. I would be offended too. If my wife didn't notice. That's fair. But we also get this great moment in the next scene, which is that Watson 
like sleuths something out like he finds it a new piece of information which is that all of the victims of the ripper all of the prostitutes that he killed knew each other they were all friends mm-hmm. which is important there's an important clue we rarely get so far adaptations where watson finds important clues right but i like that a lot i like that that like in the books he's doing some sleuthing yeah Sherlock finds Mary Kelly at a funeral. They've been looking for Mary Kelly. I forget why. Yeah. She's she's the important factor in all this. She's the one that knows all of them. I guess they all know all of them. And, but Holmes is like, she's probably going to be the next victim since like they all live near each other. Mm-hmm. They all frequent the same taverns. Mary Kelly's probably next on the list. Yeah. And everybody she... mentions Mary Kelly. Yeah. At and she, so she's the one who had a stronger relationship with Annie Crook. Mm-hmm. So everyone's telling Watson to talk to her because she'll know something. And we also know that Must Annie Crook has gone missing. She's, she's kind of hidden herself as well. Right. Yes. And we don't assume she's dead for some reason. This is the part of the movie where it starts to lose me, where I'm like, just there's a lot of characters and a lot of things are happening, and yet somehow nothing is happening. Mm-hmm. She's also in the background a lot of the times, I feel like. She was in, in the background at the first mm-hmm. murder scene. Yeah. I thought she was behind Watson when he was talking to the other prostitutes, like yeah, in the, off the back shoulder. She does yeah. leave right and after they leaves. mention. Yeah. It's not like she's completely missing. She's around. Just no one seems to know where to tell Watson to find her or wants to tell him where to find her. Yeah. What's funny is in the scene with Watson too, she's just in the background eating her lunch and then she hears her name. She's like, well, lunch is over. Time to go. Time to go. I just found that really funny. She's just like eating and then she's like, whoop. Right. The movie keeps making sure that you know that she's in the scene and that she's around. There's this woman who's around. And Sherlock also notices her at the first murder scene they attend. And then at the funeral. And, and then he finds her. So he, he goes to the funeral for one of the women. I don't know who paid for the funeral. Because I wouldn't think that the prostitutes of Whitechapel would get proper funerals. Maybe she had affluent family. Maybe. Who knows? He finds her at a funeral. He, like, chases her down. Well, not only does he chase her down, but also following them is that same black carriage and slow motion horse. <laughs> Although now the horse is in quick motion and <laughs> nearly runs them down. They have to run into the road so quickly that Sherlock Holmes hits his head and blacks out. Has a concussion. And has a concussion. And for the beginning of the next scene, I thought he had amnesia. And I was like, not this plot. <laughs> right. Not an amnesia plot. Um, but it gets resolved pretty easily. Yeah. And... It seems like the people in the carriage are grabbing Aunt Mary Kelly, right? Yes, yes, it does seem like that's what happened. But next time she's mentioned by the plot, they're like, she got away. It's like, did Right. She? I was wow. confused by that. Foxborough somehow gets his paws on her because he's trying to keep her from the Freemasons. So somehow the carriage leaves it without fulfilling its like intended purpose of getting Mary Kelly and throwing Sherlock off and it just it leaves and then Foxborough somehow swoops in. Well, we don't know her. about it because Sherlock's unconscious. We actually most of the movie is is either Sherlock and Watson is on screen. Yeah. There are one or two scenes actually where we don't see either of them, but mostly yeah. mostly we're with their POV. Right. Oh, and this is where we learn about Annie Crook. This is where we learn about Annie Crook. They go to the asylum where she lives. Right. And which means we have to depict mentally unwell people, which yeah, it's a little uncomfy. And then this scene is just where the mystery kind of I felt just went downhill mm-hmm. because we get like 
for some reason, Sherlock writes the name Eddie on a matchbox. Yeah, why? We've never heard this name before. We don't know what this... What they cut out of the movie is him writing a lot of other names on matchboxes. (laughs) (laughs) Like Clark, Jennifer, Sam. (laughs) Mary. Like, so we end up finding out who Eddie is. We do. But it seems like Sherlock finds out after this or did he already know or like did he make the connection ahead of time right we don't know yet no so well, all we get from annie clark is that she was probably put at the asylum like to silence her and that she has a baby and that she told the people who were her captors that mary kelly knew where the baby was mm-hmm. right she gave her baby to mary kelly right for safekeeping we don't know what happened to the baby thereafter. And we don't know at that point why that would be so unusual for her to have a baby with a man who she says married her. Right. Name but Eddie. somebody doesn't want them to be together and doesn't want the baby to exist. Also, at this point, Holmes suspects a court physician named Spivey because of the grapes situation mm-hmm. watson has compiled a list of doctors who live in the area that the psychic s- said was where the ripper lived and then holmes has cross-referenced this with his list of wealthy people who like fancy grapes and there's only, there's one, only one person and it's spivey. <laughs> and this doesn't ever mean anything i think no it does. I, it does i think the fact that he's a court physician points him towards the government mm, okay okay and i, I guess he's one of the two men in the upcoming scene. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the end of the asylum scene. So I just wanted to get more feelings and opinions about this. And to just if, if you all understood the emotional hills and valleys of this moment, the asylum guy comes in and is like, what are you doing? Which like, he said he was going to talk to her. I'm not sure why you're confused. To Annie, she's <laughs> talking back. He's like, you're Sherlock Holmes. And he's like, this woman cannot be confined like this. And the guy's like, well, no, she has to be because... That's what her doctor recommends. And then Holmes tries to strangle the asylum manager and then yeah. sees that Annie is crying and like just leaves. Right? Is, it is was that... very confusing. Okay. Yeah. What do you all make of this? I think that in talking to Annie and learning her story, Holmes developed a strong empathy for her and was filled with this righteous justice kind of mentality and wanted to get her out and was kind of raging against the system and expressed that as trying to strangle this man it's so not Holmes it's so not not. Holmes to be like I'm being rash and impulsive I'm going to do something that is definitely going to hurt my chances of achieving my objective like I don't I don't understand and then I don't understand why he gives up immediately (laughs) right it's also not a logical chain of events it's like, also not how he behaves at all in any point during this. Yeah, not in the rest of the movie. Certainly. He's yeah. passionate, but he's not irrational. Mm-mm. I will say during the interrogation of Annie, I was like, he's kind of toying with her. And like, she's like in a difficult position. I hope he helps her. So that at, at the end of the scene, when he's like, you must release this woman. I was like, oh, okay. That's like good that he's trying to help Annie. And I hope that she gets her happy ending because I kind of feel for her, right? Because she's yeah. like a sympathetic character. More on that later. I also don't understand why he, as soon as he leaves the asylum, says it's too late for her. 
Like yes. I kind of get this sense of like it's too late for her because she's gone through so much. She's been hurt and kind of damaged and won't be able to recover from it. He the way he says it, it sounds like she's going to die and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. He gives up on her after after three seconds of trying to strangle. Also, this train scene where they're driving away from the asylum, Watson becomes Holmes's therapist in a way that I kind of like in terms of Mm -hmm. like old married couple, their relationship He's like, I hate to see you upset. I've talked about your feelings, you know? Yeah. This is the most invested Holmes, like in a case, like actually getting emotionally attached that we have ever seen. That's true. And it does not work with the character. I mean, sure, we've seen like certain homes getting invested, but just like for duty, like Voice of Terror or, you know, or when it's like something like the the Red Headed League where he's like, right. I'm intrigued. This case is so goddamn weird. I must know more. Yeah. But, that's, this isn't yeah. That. but also like he's not that invested. He's sort of like, I'm, I sort of think someone shouldn't be doing this to these women. <laughs> and not even that. Like he doesn't really seem upset that the rest of the prostitutes are being murdered. Mm-hmm. He just seems upset that like, this one sympathetic one was imprisoned against her will. Mm-hmm. I feel like there should be some hidden backstory for this particular sub, not subplot, because it's part of the main plot, but there yeah. should be a subplot of his sister was falsely imprisoned or his mom was falsely imprisoned for being yeah. crazy. Yeah. Right. All the time they spent on the P scene could have been spent yeah. setting us up better for this scene. No, no. I, I will still say that P scene was important. <laughs> yep. The, 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 the grape stem scene. Yeah, they could have gotten rid of the grapes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, and maybe this will all tie to why I think the PC is important, especially at the end. I think it is the showing of Sherlock becoming a radical throughout the film. Because by the end, he's, spoiler alert, he's like, fuck the government. <laughs> well, except I don't think so, because they meet Foxborough in a in a dark alley, and Foxborough is like, I'm actually the head of the radicals, or or Holmes has deduced that he's the head of the radicals. Mm-hmm. But it feels much more like Holmes is like, centrism is the way, and I will stand against you. And I like he's, I, I think he's anti-radical for the whole movie. Well, yes, but I feel like by the end of the movie, with what happens, I feel like I don't think he's advocating systemic change, though. I think he's just against the specific people who are currently in charge of the government at the end. Oh, so he's kind of like a you're all terrible type person. No, I think the opposite. I don't know. I, like I, this I, one guy is terrible. Yeah, but I think the government he's, as a he's whole, like, he's... Yeah, he's like, the government would be fine if it wasn't for you. Right. The system isn't broken. You're just broken, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's really anti-radical for the whole film, I think. Mm. Which is something that I wish that there was more backstory on. Because I don't understand, maybe just I don't have enough knowledge of the time period, but I don't yeah. understand what makes them radical. What do they want? What are they right. advocating for? And what is the political dynamic between the radicals and the government other than they don't like each other? Like, that's all I get from this movie. And so it doesn't make sense to me that it's to the point where all of these murders are happening, all of the issues with the Prince of Wales are happening. Like, I wish there was more context so that I understood why people were doing what they were doing. Yeah. Are they anti-monarchists? Are they, like, communists? I'm really unclear in the movie never says. This movie feels like you need to be, and especially with like the radicalists and the Freemasons, you have to be like really knowledgeable in conspiracies about Jack the Ripper in order to get this film. Well, the idea that that Jack the Ripper was 
involved with any secret societies at the time or anything like that is not borne out by any evidence right in real life right there's no evidence but like there's a lot of like written material about it and about these conspiracies so sure. unless you're not like deep in the conspiracy tinfoil hat this this is a movie for, for people who are invested in other ripper stories is yes what you're saying. yes other ripper fiction yeah for sure uh watson also gives holmes a gun around this point in the story which he accepts mm-hmm. And I was like, that doesn't seem right. But he still has a scarf. He still has a scarf. I was like, Holmes shouldn't have a gun. I, I feel weird about seeing him. We hit the deerstalker and the coat at, at the gun. I was like, I don't think that image is right. <laughs> That's an interesting, like, tiny plot point, but a very interesting development because in the beginning, he's like, I don't need a gun. Yeah. I don't like the And Watson is like, I know you don't like it, but you should take it. And Holmes is like, no, I'm not going to. And then at this point, it almost is used as an indication that the danger level has gone up. Yeah, I feel like because Holmes is finally willing to take the gun from Watson, so it, like it, it elevates. Shows that he's scared. Yeah, it elevates the intensity of the scene. I thought. Yes, I I like that conceptually, but I I don't think I felt a raising of stakes as that, an audience member. That's what I was right. going to say. I yeah. I wish that the movie was more explicit about that. Yeah, explicit about that, yeah. and just more like thrilling. Because <laughs> by this point, like. There's really nothing thrilling happening on the screen. They're just walking well, through a foggy street. Well, no, but they're every now and then they're cutting to handheld shots of the same foggy street. So it's very tense, actually. I think by this point, the especially when watching it, the plot was too confusing that I couldn't feel mm-hmm. the imminent danger. I, yeah. I couldn't understand why there was so much danger. It just felt like... A normal yeah. Holmes case. Yeah, we're leading towards the end of the movie now. And what's happened so far is like, we met a woman who got away. We met a woman who told us something about a baby. You know, it doesn't feel like A has led to B. It doesn't feel like parts of the case are starting to come together in a way where we're starting to see pieces of it. It just feels like a lot of things have happened and now the end of the movie is happening. I would understand like in the books where Holmes is like, aha, I have solved this mystery. I almost have this mystery solved. Like he tells you like, we are getting closer to the end. And by right. this point, Holmes is like, I have no idea what's happening, but we're just going to go for the ride. I think Mary Car- Kelly's involved, but I don't know really right. what's going on. Yeah, he says in the carriage with Leaving This Island, he's like, I think we have to find her, and I think we have to find her tonight. Yeah. Well, and he also indicates that it's too late for her. Like, how do you know? How do you know that she's dead or dying or going to be murdered before you find her? He just, he kind of preemptively condemns her to death. And we don't know why. The same thing with Annie Crook. He says it's too late for both of them. And it's like, how do you know? How do you know that they're going to die before you can save them? Well, and also it seems like he's solved the case to some degree because he knows that an Eddie is involved and he knows to bring that up with Annie. Yeah. So if he's solved the case that far and to the point when when he's leaving the asylum, he already knows someone's going to try to make an attempt on Mary Kelly's life, then maybe you should have just stayed in London and protected Mary Kelly. Right. You know? Yeah. So anyway, Mary Kelly gets got. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow Holmes and Watson find her. Yeah, somehow. Somehow. And there are two men doing the Ripper murders together. With very blacked out eyes. One of them is blacked out eyes. The other one's just like an old man. Yeah. I wonder if, if the man with blacked out eyes is drugged. Right. I wonder if those were intended to be he's on something and that's why he's being able to create like these gruesome murders on behalf of this other guy who i guess doesn't want to do them himself but wants to be involved 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I think it's the seventies, and it might just be as simple as he's evil, and therefore his eyes are black. We don't ever really find out who this guy is, right? No. I think he's the doctor. Is the is the old man the doctor? Or is the, the... the old man's the doctor? We don't find out who the driver is, who is like kind of the main guy, right? We never find out who the Ripper is. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's Jack the Ripper, right? Because he's okay. So yeah, it's that it's the driver guy who's kind of pinning it on this doctor guy. Is but, that happening? But like the doctor guy is also involved. We're we're confused. So there's two guys in Mary Kelly's apartment. Apartment, which the whole apartment scene was very confusing. I could not yeah. tell what was going on. Like vaguely, like she's being tortured or something. Yeah, happening where she keeps like crying out, and there's the color red, but like it was shot yes. in a way that you couldn't really see anything. And there's two guys in there when they finally enter the apartment and the cab is outside, but I don't think the driver was with the cab at the time. So I think it's implied that the driver is in the apartment. There's one of the two men. Yeah. And then the like old man gets caught right outside the apartment, but like is giving up really easily. He he doesn't seem drugged. Is he dead? I I couldn't tell if he died or not because his eyes kept moving. I think he was acting badly. Maybe he was. (laughs) dying i don't know uh, yeah and then, he, he like slumps in a way and then like we never hear about him again so i figure and then we chase the other guys so i figure the other guy killed him but i don't know why with his long sword with his long sword that he carries everywhere do we talk about how watson gets kind of stabbed uh, watson gets stabbed and yeah. and holmes gets swiped on the yeah. cheek right has a groovy little scar later yeah and that comes from the driver with the cab right because yeah. he reaches yeah. down and swipes Holmes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. then I don't know how he gets off the cab and then and then I runs to the wharf. The oh, is it at the dock? Like, oh, yeah. yeah, I think he swipes him at the dock. And then, okay. because they've run back to the other set they have, which is the wharf set, and Sherlock finally uses his scarf for, right. for justice. Actually, it's funny because it starts out like the other guy has a sword, and then he loses the sword at some point because it turns into a chain, a chain and scarf fight which feels a little more fair although still not fair and then the guy like a scooby-doo trap jumps into some netting and gets caught up and then unlike a scooby-doo trap accidentally strangles himself yeah it reminded me of that scene from tarzan yes it's very much the death of the villain in tarzan where you're like kind of hoisted by your own petard and it's it's a very classic movie thing of like the villain has to die, but the hero can't kill the villain. Mm-hmm. So he just has to die mm-hmm. on his own somehow. Right. Uh, while the hero's nearby. Hmm. It was honestly a bit anticlimactic that way. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess this is the climax of the movie, but like the big reveal is still coming. Well, and this is the point of the movie where I turned to you and I said, I hope we have like a deduction scene where Sherlock is like, I have figured it out because I am confused. Yes. I don't know what's happening. Did is the movie over? Like what it what are we doing? Well, and the yeah. thing is, like, I, I think this is like a writing problem. Like I I I mean, obviously this is a writing problem, but I think that the writers were like, We need to make Sherlock's a big deduction reveal scene, which is coming up, surprising to the audience, so we can't let the audience know anything that's happening in the movie. Which just makes the whole thing much less satisfying because then he's like, here's what's going on. And you're like, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know (laughs) any of those pieces of information. I couldn't have possibly connected that together. You know, it's one thing when you're like, there's one piece of information that Sherlock is supplying at the end. 
where mm-hmm. he's like, you knew all this, but actually this is the thing that makes it all make sense. But right. this is like, we knew nothing. So like to start saying things that, and some of these things that he starts saying, I'm like, I don't know how you found that out or how you could have known that. Yeah. Right. Um, And I think the same is true of the grape thing. Like the grape thing feels so silly and it just feels like it could be anything. It's just like, they're there being like, see, he's doing science about deductions. Right. See, it's so, it's something. He's Sherlock Holmes. He has to do deduction science. Grapes them. Right. Well, and Emma was saying that that aspect of the Sherlock Holmes series was one of the things that had prevented them from uh, kind of getting involved sooner. Like the idea that like you can't solve the mystery on your own. Yeah. yeah. My mom and I would read murder mysteries and she would read them first and then I'd read them. And she read Sherlock Holmes and was like, I don't think you'll like it because you can't do it by yourself. And I was like, well, I want to do it. I want to be Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes can Sherlock Holmes, but I want to help. Right. I think this is the big question about mystery fiction. I think there's one analysis of mystery fiction that says the author is the criminal. They've made a crime and the reader is the detective. And they're like solving the crime the whole time. Like that's that's how that's how a lot of stories work. But Sherlock Holmes stories don't work like that. In Sherlock Holmes stories, the audience is Watson. Mm-hmm. And has to have everything explained to them. Yeah. Right. And and I think that's why those work for me personally, is because we are seeing it from the point of Watson, who's not gonna know everything and that's okay, and everything will be explained to him later. And why this doesn't work, because we don't have a real like whose POV are we watching this from? You right. know, this is just bad writing. Yeah, right. If if we're following Sherlock for chunks of the narrative. Why are the ch- why are there chunks of the narrative where we're not following Sherlock where he learns important information? Right. So I'm gonna try to boil down the plot. He goes to visit the government. He goes to this odd room. Prime I'm, Minister's there. The Prime Minister, the the other guy, Home Secretary, and Sir Charles, Chief of Scotland Yard, who has since resigned. So I don't know why he's at this meeting. And they've called him in because he's been saying some shit in the press. Yeah. I guess. Maybe. And he's like, let me tell you what's going on. Eddie is actually the Prince of Wales in the beginning of the movie and the future King of England. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. It's not the future King of England. It's the person who's next in line from the Prince of Wales. The Duke of something. Oh, right. Thank you. Yeah. Eddie is the Duke of something from the beginning of the movie who is standing next to the Prince of Wales, which is why I was confused. Mm-hmm. And he married, in quotes, but never explained why, his servant Annie Crook and had a baby and had and she had a baby he didn't do it and the baby was Catholic which is an issue in the Victorian era something they again have not established and therefore she was cast out a baby or no 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 Annie was cast out and went into hiding and gave the baby to Mary and then Mary told all of her friends about the baby because she was worried about being tracked down. Mm-hmm. And then the government, the Freemasons, is the implication, were like, we have to kill all these women because we have to secure the future of the English monarchy and no one can know about this Catholic baby that is in line for the throne now. Because the Church, Church of England... Right. right. And that was a very big no-no up until, like, even the, I think there's like, 50s or 60s. Yeah, yeah, and and like I know that from reading other historical fiction, but the movie never explains it early in the movie. So it's like he just mentions the baby is Catholic, and we all go, okay. <laughs> I guess a contemporaneous audience in the late seventies would know, but that feels like something that needs to be explained in twenty twenty three. 
And there's no like even signs of religion in this film at all from like the other characters. Yeah. There's like no way to know like the other characters are Protestant. Right. Yeah. There's and, no shorthand for it. Like the only image that we get is when Annie Crook is telling uh, us about telling Mary Kelly about the baby is that they're in a courtyard with nuns in the background. Right. Right. You don't know oh, whose nuns they are. They're just nuns. I assume they were Catholic nuns. Are there non-Catholic nuns? Oh, I don't know. I thought they were all Catholic. Nuns, if you're listening, let us know, please. Yeah. All Um, you nuns out there. Send a pigeon. I mean, it's a weird detail to include, but they had to include something that made this, like, quote, illegitimate child, even though it is legitimate because they were married, but Mm -hmm. wasn't royalty. Right. I think that's why the marriage doesn't count. Right. So this, like, quote, illegitimate child, in order to make it a big deal, they have to add something because it was not uncommon for monarchs at the time to have illegitimate children. Yeah. So they had to include something that would make it more of an indiscretion. And it feels weird for us in our time period to have that be the religion that the child was brought up because also... It's still a baby. Couldn't you just change the religion that it's following? Right. But yes, because it was baptized. Uh, Assigned so, Catholic like, at birth or a Catholic. <laughs> 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 That's great. I'm going to use that. Based on, um, my, based on my quick Google search, it may be the way that they're, the nuns were dressed because it looks like Catholic nuns dress in black and white and mm-hmm. Protestant nuns dress in blue. Oh, so that might oh. have been a hidden clue that would have made sense to the original audience. In and England those were penguin nuns. Those were penguin nuns. Then the prime minister, who, by the way, is John Gielgud, is <laughs> is like, and I, I'm sure you don't have any proof of this. And he's like, I do have proof. And he's like, he's like pieces of paper. And he slams them down. He's like, proof that a baby was had. And proof that it was Catholic. And proof that, that a woman was involuntarily committed to an asylum or whatever the things are. And it's like, who wrote all these things down? When did he get these things? When did he get these things? What what are they? Did Watson get them for him? Like like proof that a proof that a marriage was had, proof that an illegit- like why why are people keeping records of these things? I mean, and... it could have been a marriage certificate for the marriage, a birth certificate for the child. Right. Maybe like for the for Annie Crook being committed to the asylum some like enrollment paperwork. I guess. Um, like but still like how would he get his hands on those things? And also Arguably, it's still like he hasn't actually connected it to the Freemasons. Like it's still circumstantial, right? I mean, in order to get those records, he would have had to go to wherever they kept the records, which is a public government office, where the government people could have burned those records. It would have yeah. been that simple. Well, you and can't also... prove that Annie Crook was married to this guy. You can't prove that the baby records? was born to this guy. Well, and. I feel like Sherlock's putting a huge target on his back because he knows the government killed a lot of people to hide the secret and he's showing up at the, to hello, Mr. Government, I know this secret and I'm the only one left who knows it. I also don't love the Freemasons run the entire government because it feels so like a secret organization runs the government. We can't trust the government. Right, right, but it, it feels like such an anti-Semitic conspiracy, mm. you know, mm-hmm. to be like this secret shadowy organization runs the entire government. Like people still believe that. And especially because they, like, briefly link it to anti-Semitism early in the movie, too. I'm like, I don't love how this feels. That feels kind of gross. No. To be like, the entire government is Freemasons, actually. Because he shows up and he's like, all of you, are, all three of you, all the, the three men who represent the government in this room are Freemasons. And then implies maybe the king 
is under the queen is not it is it is the queen at this time yeah no it's the queen but she's not yeah. a freemason he's literally like listen cut this shit or i'm telling the queen oh i'll tell your mother that would scare me and then he just goes home like he's not worried that the government's going to kill him well no he's like right y'all should resign oh yeah y'all should resign and if anything happens to that baby i'll know about it and it's, we're like we the baby what about the baby oh. Do you know where the baby is? Do you know where the baby is? It seems like no one knows where the baby is. Yeah, even the Freemasons are like, we don't know where the baby is. So you're fucking fine. Yeah. And then he goes back to his apartment and he's like, Watson, if you don't mind if I play the violin. Well, first he's playing it pretty depressingly. Oh, he right. He's not even holding the violin. It's <laughs> It's propped up and he's just like bowing at it on a stand, which is not how anyone plays the violin. Mm-mm. And Watson's like, come on. <laughs> I'm trying to read here. <laughs> right. And then, but then he actually asked permission. He's like, I hope you don't mind if I play the violin. And he's like, yes, Holmes, play. And he starts playing the violin. And Watson's like, I want to read my book. And before that, we were both like watching it. We were like, okay, is is the baby going to be in the apartment? Because it feels like we need to like resolve that thread. Yeah. They're taking care of the baby. Which would also be horrible because the Masons could just come to their apartment because they know where they live. And they'd be terrible parents. Well, yeah. They would. And then the last shot of the movie is a like little girl running with some nuns. Mm-hmm. Yep. And a puppy. And a puppy. So presumably that's the baby mm-hmm. who has gotten older. And that baby would later become Maria Von Trapp. <laughs> Actually, the time that might work out. Yep. I know. I just thought of it. <laughs> and it's funny because Christopher Plummer was in the Sound of Music movie. There we go. It's the it's the Christopher Plummer cinematic universe. <laughs> CPCU. So the baby's been alive this whole time and has been with the nuns this whole time. And Oh yeah. I guess. So I didn't I didn't catch the thing earlier about Mary Kelly and Annie meeting in front of nuns. So did Mary Kelly even ever have the baby? Or did she just immediately give it to nuns? I think she immediately gave it to the nuns. And then they, when because they were torturing her before they killed her, they didn't get anything out of her. So there's just this safe baby, presumably, being raised by nuns. Mm-hmm. Like, fit in line to the throne. And I'm very confused about the timeline, because the quote-unquote baby is, is yeah. actually, well, like, four or five years old. Definitely. So how long was this guy married to Annie Crook? How long has it been since he left her? And, and when did it become a scandal in... that required cleaning up? Right. What is the timeline? Well, it seems so much longer than the sudden murders. Yeah, and it seems like it took a while for him to find out that she was raising the baby Catholic, mm-hmm. which seems odd, but would play into the the baby's a little bit older timeline. I, just the whole plot is very weird. No, you know what? You know what? This makes sense because the government is just always slow at things. That's why it took also true. Damn bureaucracy. They had to get through the forms before they could start doing the murders. <laughs> yeah. I want to imagine Sherlock Holmes being at these official government places, like being at the DMV waiting to get these things. <laughs> God, Holmes would be insufferable at a DMV. He'd be like, clearly you took lunch when you told me that you were going to deal with me next. <laughs> I deduce that you hate your life. And that you've been crying in the back room. That's the, that's the forms actually that he's that he's plopping down is like here's the forms you said you were going to do murders. Here's the <laughs> here's the minutes from the committee meeting where you said you were going to do murders. Here's your license and registration <laughs> things. 
<laughs> also during this this cli- I say climactic for lack of a better word because it's really kind of not that interesting. This big scene where he meets the government, which is just through these three men. He's like, my demands are that no one touches that baby, which and we all don't know where the baby is, and also that you release Annie Crook from the asylum. And they're like, she has been freed in the most extreme sense. She is dead. And Holmes is like sad about that for 0.2 seconds before moving on. And I just, I just, I thought maybe there would be like one woman who survived the entire movie. They also suggest that she killed herself. And Sherlock goes, I wish I could believe that. But I don't. Yeah. You've been capable of murder this whole time. Why would you try to convince me that she killed herself and yeah. didn't didn't have an accident? Yeah. It's it's unfortunate in a, like the Jack the Ripper story is is like fundamentally about a persecuted class of, of lower class women that Londoners didn't care about until it was too late. Right. And it's really disappointing that in this movie all the women are just plot devices. Like there are no women who are characters. Like the most, the most interaction we have with a woman is the prostitute who tricks, tricks, Watson. tricks Watson into an alley to rob him, and then gets him arrested by claiming he's the Ripper. Mm-hmm. She's the only one who survives, presumably. Yeah, and I think she has the most lines. It brings up a curious thought for me: of is this more of a Jack the Ripper story than a Sherlock Holmes story? Mm. yes i think probably it is uh, i would it, say so yeah I, I it wants to be a like the government is run by a cult story but i don't think it really pulls it off yeah 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 i don't think it's either story because i don't think there's really anything substantial from either side to be fully a jack the ripper movie or fully a sherlock holmes movie mm-hmm. yeah this just seems like a weird frankenstein's monster the awkward in between the Jack the Holmes, Sherlock the Ripper, Holmes Sherlock the Ripper. the Ripper. Yeah, that would have been an excellent twist. It turns out it was Watson the whole time. Okay, but like that would make sense because Watson is a doctor, and all the deaths of like the prostitutes were allegedly done by doctors or like yeah, yeah. carried out. And clearly, Sherlock Sherlock doesn't know when when Watson doesn't come home. Supposedly, yeah. So like, so, it, I think that would have been so much fun. So, final thoughts, and then we'll write the movie. Overall, I kind of struggled with this movie just to get through it. It was a fairly confusing plot. The way that it was filmed, while it created some intensity, it just made the story hard to follow. I think if I watched it again, it would make more sense because I'd have more answers sooner. But as a like first and probably only watch. Mm-hmm. It was slow, mm-hmm. even when it was trying to be fast. Yeah. It was yeah. always slow motion horse. It was, it was a never very long movie. It was wow. never fast motion horse. It's interesting to read about the like critical reception section of this movie's Wikipedia page because people are kind of divided about this movie. There's some people who are like, it's a it's like a, a great movie and it's a fun romp, but it's fun to see Sherlock and Watson in those foggy streets. And then some some people who are like it fails to pick up any momentum. Nothing happens in the middle of the movie. It, you know, it's a, an interesting attempt to tell it was kind of story, but not a successful one. And I think I fall more in the latter camp than in the former. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I can agree. I, I just think this movie has an identity problem. It doesn't know what it wants to be. 
it's trying to be both and yeah i think at times it wants to be a slasher film mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it wants to be both a jack the ripper film and sherlock holmes and it kind of turns out being neither and i can i can kind of imagine a like good jack the ripper sherlock holmes film mm-hmm. like i think there's something that could be good there mm-hmm. i mean this is a Holmes podcast i would want it to be more homesy i would want it to be more tracking down clues solving things and less like gratuitous violence slasher film because i feel like having a detective like counteracts slasher horror because i think a lot of slasher horror is about fear of the unknown mm-hmm. and the whole detective thing is being like all right well let's, let's make this shit known yeah you know yeah. i think ideally there's something comforting about detective fiction that you go this situation seems scary but we're gonna mm-hmm. figure it out and i i wish it had been more in that direction and i wish that there were there's at least one prostitute who is like a three-dimensional character. Like, I wish the client was a prostitute, you know? And I feel maybe with Jack the Ripper, because it is still an unsolved case to this day, that, like, it would be really hard to do, like, a Holmesian adaptation of Jack the Ripper without, like, getting into some weird cult business or some weird, like, secret something or other just because it's still unsolved i think if the like the mystery was solved i think it would make a better well and also like the idea of telling a story a Sherlock Holmes story about like uncovering a plot that like reaches into the very depths of the government and all goes all, all the way to the top is it exciting and interesting i think other Sherlock Holmes movies have done stuff like that mm-hmm. but here it doesn't feel like there's a payoff to it i think maybe if it was like a made-up call or something yeah it may have been better but i think because it's something that has so much history and confusing history to begin with it just kind of muddies it so let's rate the film i'm excited about rating this one (laughs) so we rate the films on five qualities Mm -hmm. loyalty to the source material grade of mystery britishness total enjoyment and queer subtext or lgbtq get it (laughs) Uh, so we'll talk about each one we'll try to agree on a number each one is out of five but in the past we have done decimals we've gone above five if if the situation truly demands it let's just say for the last one the queer subtext out of five was seven so so everything is on the table we've never done negative numbers before but this might be the this might be the first time this might be the first time so loyalty to the source material i would probably give it a one I think that the dynamic of Watson and Sherlock's relationship, while it was really fun and entertaining for this film, I think that their character development as individuals was kind of opposite to the to the source material. Yeah, on the level of Holmes and Watson as characters, I would definitely give it a one. I agree with the one, I think. Uh, you know, I'm tr- I, other criteria would be like the way that Holmes acts on the case, which yeah, which is also is not loyal, not loyal. Yeah. yeah, I think a one works for me. I'm cool with the one. I'm also cool with the one. It's not what I expected Sherlock Holmes' story to be. It was too thinky in all the wrong ways. A grade of mystery two. This is a bad mystery. Who seems high? You think two so? Does seem high. Do you think this is a negative? <laughs> I don't know about negative. I I mean, what is the mystery? Women are dying. Why are they dying? There's a cult? And, and who is killing them? 
Someone's killing them. Uh, There's a cotton a baby? I think when I think about Grave of Mystery, I think about like the audience experience of the mystery more than the, the mystery itself. Oh, if we're thinking of that, then that's definitely like a zero. Yeah. I mean, nothing develops. I like I, I feel like the audience is just kept in the dark for so long. There's no like sense of things. Like we just get like little hints where like Sir Charles is a Freemason. And you're like, is that is that related to the case? Right. And again, with like the whole freemason thing i think it would have been better if the film kind of like explained them instead of being like there's just this this secret creepy cult right audience who should be scared of secret societies in the government no less yeah i zero yeah zero there was more confusion than mystery i think yeah this is our first zero i feel like i could go up to one i don't know i I really i'm just torn I think the the initial idea would have been like a two or three, but the uh, execution was probably a one, and that kind of translates into a one point five. Mm. I'm, I'm okay with saying a one. Okay, give it a one. Yeah. All right, Britishness. It's pretty British, I gotta say. It's pretty British. We didn't talk about it a lot, but there's some really stupid mustaches in this movie, which I think gives it some points here. The foggy streets. And the foggy streets. The little back alleys behind the connected buildings. And uh, also also Watson's accent gives us a a solid point, at least. There's monarchists. It assumes you know something about British politics without ever explaining itself, which is very British. (laughs) Yeah, I'd give this like a four or five on Britishness. Four or five for Mm -hmm. me too. Yeah, four or five. What do you guys think? I mean, what would make it more British, I guess, if we're trying to debate between a four and a five? If they stopped for tea. They didn't stop for tea. (laughs) They did not stop for tea. Yeah. You could have turned the pee time into tea time. (laughs) But then you wouldn't have had the metaphor. You wouldn't have had the metaphor. I feel like like it's a four. What's the highest British score you've given? The highest British score was his... The Voice of Terror, Terror, which was a six. Because it was so British. Mm -hmm. But it was also... They were like rousing patriotic speeches in that one. Right. But I would argue because there's a lot of like... Like that film was invested in, in having a British identity as a piece. Whereas this just feels like it's coincidentally British. British. I would well, give it four for that. Well, and I think because it depends on the time period where that one was focused on, like, Britishness in the context of the World War. Yeah. That's different than British in the context of day-to-day Victorian London. It approaches Britishness in a way that, like high school musical approaches americanness it just happens to be in that country they don't really mention it because it's just how it is it's the normal right yeah i think that's a four for me yeah that's a four which is the highest score we've given this movie so far (laughs) well we might give it a score in total enjoyment total enjoyment it's a zero i don't know no there are there's one or two moments i like giggled or like enjoyed a holmes and watson moment Mm -hmm. or you know like i think maybe it's a one for me though now if we're talking total enjoyment is that about like the mystery of a whole or just the film as a whole film as a whole okay yeah i guess for the holmes and watson of it all christopher Plummer was a really great holmes as uncharacterized as his holmes was i really enjoyed his performance in a way yeah yeah, I give it a one because there were moments that I enjoyed as well, especially with the Holmes and Watson dynamic. As much as it wasn't your typical Holmes and Watson dynamic, I did find that fun and their performance was really good. But as a whole, the movie was just kind of disappointing for me and hard to follow. So, yeah, maybe a one. Yeah, I agree yeah. With that. 
and then last but very much not least queer subtext <laughs> it's very queer it's very it's queer. queer i feel like it's not that invested in being very queer like we get some no. moments but i could go like a three yeah it's accidentally I... very queer yeah 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 i think the, it's I mean, somewhere in the middle there's some very nice like like we're walking and you're holding my arm kind of stuff which is l- lovely and small and then obviously like the the domesticity of their dialogue is mm. lovely like the thing at the opera has a, has very much like yeah we've been married for 40 years thing going on yeah, yeah. Um, i also think you mentioned all of the jokes earlier about watson and women um and it almost feels like an overcompensation yeah like it almost feels like it's in there to highlight the fact that he doesn't have a wife and he isn't interested in women and to kind of point in that direction of like I, w- I make those jokes with Jess where I'm like, oh, is that your work husband now? Or like, I'll be like, oh, that's your work wife? Because it's that joke that I can make with her because it's not coming from any kind of place of jealousy. Right, yeah. and it's not true. I like that it's it's the equivalent of Sherlock being like, gay? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did do that at the very beginning where they're talking about, what was it? Oh, do you think we should get a covered carriage? Well, no, I quite like that. I'm like, that's... That's a homosexual subplot, if I've ever heard one. Right. And then... That's a couple right there. Sherlock just walks into Watson's room that we only see one bed in, but it's it's very possible that there's another bed for Sherlock on the other wall. I think there's only one bed. (laughs) You think there's only one bed? There's only one bed. Very small bed. Snuggling is a thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But he just walks in. You wouldn't just walk into your roommate's room without knocking. Yeah. Especially two grown men. You just yeah. walk to your spouse's room because mm. it's also your room. Yeah, but then the th- the problem is like there's some lovely moments like that, and then the rest of the movie is just like I, I, they always like each other. Though I could go four. I think I'm comfortable with. Let's do three point five. Three point five. Yeah. Alrighty, so that gives us a total of ten point five, the lowest rating so far. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for the worst film we've ever seen on this podcast. We went from the best, the top, the highest to the worst so yeah. far. <laughs> this time, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Thank you for fun. having thank us. You. Thank you for watching a, a bad movie with us. Happy Halloween, everybody. Ooh. Happy Halloween. <laughs> uh, we'll be back uh, next week looking at two more uh, stories from Arthur Conan Doyle's original canon. And then the week following that, we'll be talking to playwright Christopher Walsh about his plays, Miss Holmes and Miss Holmes Returns. We finally might have women. (laughs) Thank God. We've been your Baker Street regulars. And we'll see you next time.